Well, I want to say welcome. Welcome to all of you who are watching us online and joining us. We're so glad to have you wherever it is that you're joining us. And for the first time in, I think it's been almost 18 months, welcome to those of you in the room. And it is so exciting for me to be able to look out and, and again, so glad that you can all join us wherever you're at. Uh, but if you're watching on Sunday or sometime after Sunday, by now you've heard, you know that we recorded this uh, midweek and we have uh, just a small group of people in the room. We're still uh, just restricted in our numbers and making sure we're trying to keep people safe. Uh, but for the first time uh, in a very long time, we have some people in the room today and I am thrilled about that. I'm thrilled to look out and see some faces that I recognize and that I know and that I'm thrilled to see here in the building again. And I'm excited uh, to see some people I've never met before and see some very fresh faces. And I'm looking forward to meeting you and, and getting to know you a little bit. And uh, this is a perfect time, whether you're online or in person, to be checking us out because we are talking uh, a lot about right now who we are as a church, who we need to be as a community. And uh, one of the things that I have missed so much and that we got to do just a little bit today, tonight, um, a little sneak peek of... Uh, uh, is we got to have some music, um, and I know on, online we've, we've been having music and stuff like that, but tonight as we were recording, we got to do a little bit of this together uh, as we start to ramp up towards uh, things that are a little bit more normal for us as we go. Um, but we got to sing together, and we were singing this song that's brand new to me, might be new to some of you, and the chorus says this, and I still believe you're the same yesterday, today, and forever, and I still believe your blood is sufficient for me. And when I start thinking about what kind of community we are, what kind of community we ought to be, or maybe that we should be striving for, and thinking about that as we start this process of, of regathering and having more opportunities to come together, and hopefully in the not-too-distant future, to have more of us gathering together, um, just thinking through some of those words that we still believe that whatever's happened in our lives and in our world, that God is still the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, that we still believe. And this is an extremely powerful statement that we were singing, that his blood, the blood of Jesus, is sufficient for me. In fact, thinking through what our identity is is really, really important. There's a lot of voices that tell us who we are or who we should be. Voices that speak into our lives that either demand something from us. This is who I think you should be. And maybe that comes from sometimes it's our, our parents. Sometimes it's our culture. It's social media. Um, it's our friends. It's our teachers. It's our mentors. Some of those messages can be really, really healthy. Some of them can be not so healthy. I don't know if any of you uh, really checked out some of the Olympics uh, this summer. Um, there's a lot of highlights, a bunch of highlights for Canadian athletes. One of them uh, was a swimmer, Penny Alexiak. Uh, if you've been watching the Olympics and you, you got into that, not just this year, but in uh, the last one in 2016, uh, you, you might know her name. Uh, she is now Canada's most decorated Olympian. Um, she has, I think, seven total medals, and she won three more at this Olympics in Tokyo. And afterwards, she sent out this amazing tweet that I love. I don't know if you saw it, but this is what she tweeted. She said, I just Googled, quote, Canada's most decorated Olympian, and my name came up. I want to thank that teacher in high school who told me to stop swimming to focus on school because swimming wouldn't get me anywhere. This is what dreams are made of. Oh, that's, I mean, that's such a good tweet. And I don't, I don't know. Uh, obviously, it's, it's kind of playful and joking. I don't know, uh, you know, if this is like a deep thing that a teacher said to her that, that uh, she held on to all this time or if it's supposed to be a little bit lighter. I know she's joking around and stuff like that. But it made me think how many of us have had some sort of statement like that, whether positive or negative like this one, that kind of stuck with us. 
that really stuck with us in the back of our head. And it started to kind of mess with who we thought we are uh, and who we thought uh, we could be or couldn't be and how we were going to kind of operate in the world and treat other people. Because it's amazing the effect that what other people think of us and what other people say to us has on our self-confidence, our self-esteem, our self-worth the things that we think we should do or can do or can't do, how we think through what a good life is, like what's a moral life, for example, and what are good choices and how do I make them and all those kind of stuff. And, and you, might, uh, you might have some of those, those things in the back of your mind. Again, could be super positive, people that encouraged you, people that you looked up to. Again, it could be a parent or a mentor or a, a, a boss or uh, whoever, even just a friend that just said something to you that made you believe in yourself or somebody who said things to you that made you feel uh, like you couldn't, like there were things that you couldn't do or you shouldn't do, made you feel unworthy, made you feel lousy about yourself, disrupted your confidence. It's amazing how, uh, how much of our identity and self-esteem and confidence come from what other people say, especially people that we're supposed to look up to. Specifically, people who have authority in our lives, right? Somebody with authority says something, and those are often the people um, that, that really they can stick in our head. So I was thinking about that, that teacher comment from Penny Alexiak, and I thought of an example that, that's even in my life that's just, you know, even shows the contrast of a really maybe healthy and not so healthy uh, message that I got from some of my teachers in high school. See, when I was in my last year of high school, uh, my dad passed away. He had been struggling through fighting cancer for somewhere about a year, which meant for our family, most of that year um, was, uh, you know, juggling jobs and school and visiting in the hospital as much as we could. And of course, there are stresses that come with all of that, uh, emotional and, and physical and, and spiritual. And, and there was just, it was a heavy year and a heavy time. And uh, after he passed away, I remember uh, we were partway through the school years, my last year. So it was that year where you're thinking about my marks really matter because I want to get into a certain program at university. And uh, there's, there's a certain amount of pressure to all of that. And I remember the principal of my school came to me and said, uh, listen, all of your teachers know your situation. And so if you need any help, you just ask them. You just ask them for what you need, and they're going to do their best to help you. Uh, however you, you might need help has been a tough spot for you. And so I remember going into physics class. Physics um, wasn't my best subject. It wasn't, you know, wasn't that I couldn't do it, but it was, you know, most of us know, it's not an easy thing to learn physics. And I wasn't doing as well as I, I hoped I uh, could have done. And of course, a lot of my time and energy and focus hadn't been there. And so I remember what the principal said, and I went to the teacher, and I was a little bit sheepish about it. I didn't really want to ask for help, but I just went to him and said, Hey, um, I just, I'm wondering if I can get some help because uh, yeah, I'm, I've fallen behind a little bit and I haven't been able to focus on much. I don't need a handout or anything. I'm just wondering, is there a couple of tests I could retake? Is there some assignments I could do for extra credit? Is there just something I could work on uh, to really just up my mark here and, and get caught up and, and work on things? And I remember he just looked back to me and he said, well, you know, that really wouldn't be fair. It wouldn't be fair to everybody else. Now, I was 18 years old and maybe not super mature. But I also walked out of that room thinking, I'm not sure that this year has been totally fair for everyone, including myself. But whatever, that, that was it. But the message that I received that day from that teacher was, you're on your own. 
And as you struggle through this, we have to be fair here. And so there's really nothing I can do for you. And so uh, I took a day or two to think about it. I went down to the guidance counselor and I dropped that course. I decided it wasn't worth the hassle. Uh, It wasn't helping me. I decided I didn't absolutely need it. And uh, it just, it was like this weight on my shoulders. And I realized I wasn't getting any help. I wasn't getting even any opportunities to work on things. And then I went to my English class. And I remember that time of the year, we were doing presentations, and we had to, I forget what it was, but we had to work on something and write something and and then go up in front of the class, and it was going to be drawn out over a number of weeks where everybody takes their turn. And I remember the teacher, in order to be fair about who was going first and who got more time to prepare and all that kind of stuff, drew names for the order of who was presenting. And I so happened to be right near the beginning, one of the first ones. And of course, again, this was a time, there's a lot of stress and I was trying to get caught up. I hadn't been in school for some time, missed some stuff. And I remember she came to me and she said, Dave, is there anything I can do to help you right now? Is there, is there anything that you need? And I remember, especially after the physics guy being like, I don't really want to ask for anything, but I'm really, I could use some time. So I said, you know, it would just be great if I could just go closer to the end of the presentations than the beginning so I have a little bit more time to work on stuff. And I remember she looked at me and I thought she was going to cry. And she said, anything that you need, anything that you need that I could help you with, absolutely you can go towards the end. And I look back on this. I didn't really, I didn't really think this was super significant at the time, but I did my presentation and I don't even remember exactly what it was about, but it was something where we got to choose something and and I wrote on something and studied something that was, um, had something to do with religious things and spiritual things. And I remember when she gave back uh, my mark and, and what she had written about my presentation and my work. And she wrote in there and said that she said, this was the first person I think that ever said something like this to me. She said, I think that one day you could speak and right in a religious or a spiritual context, and you have a gift for that. And at that time, I said, that sounds good. I'm going to study kinesiology. That only lasted a year, and I ended up doing this eventually. I didn't realize it at the time, but right then and there, and this lady was not a Christian lady, and I don't know if she had any spiritual uh, sensitivities at all, but I realized that through her, God had planted a seed in me by what she said. That that day, and by that, that, that openness to say, I'm not going to give you a free pass, but anything I could do to help you, I will do. And then to see something good in me and saying, I see something. I see some potential. This could be something for you. God planted a seed in my life through what she said. That's a powerful thing. It was a powerful part. It took me a while, but of, of coming to know who I am and how God has wired me. And today, one of the things that I want to, I want to tell you is that God is like the English teacher. And it is God's great pleasure to look at you and see what is good and to call it forth. I'll show you what I mean. Uh, If you have a Bible, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to start reading in verse 3. This is uh, writing to a group of believers mixed. Some were Jewish and some were not Jewish. That's important. We'll talk about it later. And uh, as this letter is written, the verses we're talking about today, it's going to be 11 verses, 3 to 14. And... uh, In the original Greek that this is written in, we read it in English, obviously it's translated. In the original Greek, it's all one sentence, 11 verses, the entire thing. In English, most translators have put punctuation in because otherwise we wouldn't be able to make any sense of it. It just, it's like a run-on sentence. It's like when the writer was writing this, they were so excited and so taken up that they were just taking words that were coming to their mind and trying to put them down on paper 
And it wasn't even sufficient because they're just so excited. You need to know this. You need to know this. And I'm putting this in there. And I can't even write everything that I want to tell you about who God is and what he has for your life. So they, I don't know, it's just one big run on sentence. But luckily, we have a couple of periods to help us make sense of it. And uh, what I think, if I was going to kind of break this down and summarize it and say, what is this all about? I'm going to call it five ways that God gets the best out of us. And this will start not with who you are, although that is going to be drawn out. It's going to start with who God is. So here we go. Verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Let's just go here for a second. If you were with us last week, you watched that video. Uh, in Christ is a huge phrase in the book of Ephesians. And it talks about the fact that Christ, who is the anointed one, who is Jesus, the anointed one could being king, uh, the one who is anointed as kings were anointed. That's where that word comes from. And so we're, we're talking about Jesus. But Jesus is also our representative as a group. Those who follow Jesus or the church are found to be in Christ in this language, which means we as a group, let's say we're all in this big circle, you know, we're followers of Jesus. We are in Christ, which means Christ is the head, Christ is the representative. And what we said last week is that what is true of Christ is true of us. That there are things that have been given to Christ that are then imputed to his followers. We're going to find out five things that if we, we find our, we are in Christ in those things, I believe draw out the best of who we are, will change our lives. I will say this, if you're at home, take out a pen, take out some paper and write these things down. There's going to be five of them. You put them on your fridge. You want to be reminded because this is who we are. This is who we are. This is our identity. This is the, the, the authority figure looking at us and saying, I want to tell you what I see in you. And the first one is that we are blessed. It says it right there. Blessed be the God of Father. So we're blessing God. He is the God that Jesus calls Father. Jesus is our Christ, the anointed one, which means he's the king. He's Lord, means we follow him. Who has blessed us in Christ. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That is, the things that God wants us to have, to be blessed with, we have been blessed with. Now, we don't talk too much about a word of blessing in our culture. But a real blessing is a word that creates its own reality. It is when someone sees good in us, and we can bless each other, when someone sees a good in us and points it out and says it, and a true blessing creates that reality. It sees the goodness in someone, and then it calls it out. It sees the potential. It sees what is beautiful and wonderful and says, that's who you are. God has blessed us in Christ. Our goodness called out. See, this is pretty important because we hear a lot of curses. Again, not language that we use, but we hear a lot of things that make us feel terrible, make us feel unworthy, make us feel like we're not good enough, make us feel ugly, make us feel like we have so much demanded from us and so we're so tired trying to always, always live up to something, some, some expectation that other people have from us or a disappointment that people have spoken into our lives. Maybe you think of one right now, an authority figure that's spoken to your life, something that just hurt you so badly and it's stuck with you maybe for years. But we have been blessed. We are blessed in Christ, God has seen good in us and he calls it out. Unfortunately, we end up so oftentimes living out of our deficits of the curses that we hear, right? Trying to make up for, oh, I'm, I'm not what this person accepts, ex expects of me, or I'm not living up to this demand of, of culture, or I don't compare well to other people. And we start to live out of, out of fear, out of anxiety, 
out of our deficits. But God calls us to live out of our blessing, that he sees good in us and he's calling it out of us. When Jesus was baptized, we read in the Gospels, it says that he heard a voice, the voice of his heavenly father, who said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. In other words, this is my child who I love and I absolutely delight in them. I mean, not I begrudgingly have to take care of them, but I absolutely delight in them. And do you know that that blessing to Jesus in Christ is a blessing for us? We'll see that more throughout this passage, that what is said of Jesus from his heavenly Father, that blessing is for us, that goodness is for us to be drawn out. Now this first, uh, this first way that God gets the best out of us, that we are blessed, is really where the other four come from. All of them come under the umbrella. So we talk in these first few verses about these are the spiritual blessings. You go, well, what is that? What is the good? What, what are those things? Well, the rest of the in Christ that we're going to look at start to explore that blessing, that goodness that God is calling out of us, that he sees in us. So second, we are chosen in him. Verse 4 says, even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So right there in verse four, even as we are chosen in him, we are blessed in him and we are chosen in him. When someone is chosen, it means that they have been seen as a special and worthy person, that they have been seen by someone who wants them, who loves them. We read that in love, he predestined us. He said, I choose you, I want you. You are special to me. Now, we live in such a competitive culture and in a competitive world and a competitive worldview that when we read about being chosen, we sometimes automatically think, if I'm chosen, it means someone else is not chosen. If I'm chosen for the prize and I win, everybody else loses. If I'm in, it means other people are out. This is not the force of what Paul is saying. And actually, some of that theology is preached very much in certain churches, and I think it really misses the point because what we actually have here is Paul is taking a very specific title, <clears throat> this title of Christ, which is in the Old Testament Hebrew, is the same as Messiah. So Messiah in Hebrew, Christ is the Greek of the same idea. It's the anointed one. It is in the Old Testament. Uh, we talk about the Messiah. It's used for people like Moses. In fact, his word and that his name and that word come from the same root. Uh, he's the anointed one. Or uh, the King David and all the kings, really, because kings are anointed. They are Messiah. Messiah. So it's a very Jewish thing. And then leading up to Jesus' time, there were a lot of expectations in the Jewish world. We're looking for our Messiah. Who's it going to be? They often thought it would be a king, um, a warrior, someone who's going to free them from their oppressors. Uh, often people thought that was very physical and um, like a warfare type of thing against the Romans. Paul, as he takes it here, takes that concept, which is very specific to a Jewish concept, in the first century, not just the first century, but at this point in the first century. And he is going to expand it to make it eternal and universal. Did you catch it? He chose us before the foundation of the world. 
And he's speaking to the Ephesians, who some of them are Jewish and some of them are not Jewish. Well, is the Messiah for us? Is it for somebody else? It's for everybody. And when was this decision made? Was this decision made in light of what's just happened over the last few years? Or in the light of us just meeting as the Ephesian church in light of our current situations? Before the foundation of the world. That's incredible. This was God's eternal plan. Now, this is incredible because when we look at the fact that we're chosen, we might be tempted to say, well, why am I chosen? Why are we chosen? Does God look out at the world and go, well, look what's in the news. Look what's happening. Oh, look at these people. I didn't anticipate this. What should I do about that? God doesn't choose us in response to some event or circumstance. Before the foundation of the world. Could you imagine, I don't know how the, I mean, this could never happen. But imagine that there was somebody who could talk to God about his reasoning before anything was created. And God goes, yeah, I'm going to create this, this whole world, the heavens and the earth. I'm going to put a whole bunch of people on them. They're going to be my people. I'm going to choose them. And could you imagine somebody said, well, what happens if that goes wrong? What happens if they turn away from you? God would say, well, then I'll turn towards them. What happens if they offend you? Well, then I'll forgive them. What happens if they try and kill you? Then I'll die for them. I choose them. I choose them. God chooses us. We have been chosen before the foundation of the world. It wasn't God coming up with some backup plan. It was no matter what happens, these are my people. I choose these people in love. He predestined us for adoption. Now, here's some other language, and there's a bunch of words. One of them is predestined here uh, later in verse 5 to the purpose of his will, according to the purpose of his will. Uh, later in other verses, uh, we have some, some other language uh, according to his purpose that he set forth, uh, according to the mystery of his will, the plan for the fullness of time. We have all of these words that basically say God is doing this on purpose, not an accident. I mean, it's all through these 11 verses. It's like you can't say it enough. God's plan, God's purpose, according to his pleasure, according to his will, the mystery that we now know a little bit more about. We finally get it. God has been choosing us all this time. And for what? Adoption to himself as sons. Now, in this culture, sons were the ones who would inherit. We'll talk about an inheritance a little bit later. But adoption is important. So someone in this culture, Paul's culture, uh, who was probably wealthy and didn't have their own children, would be the kind of person that would usually adopt. And what they would do is they would go actually to slaves. And they would, they would pay for a slave's freedom and adopt that slave into their family so that they were no longer a slave, they were now free, they were a son, and they would become part of the family. And we'll see later, become an heir. This, what I have is going to be yours. You and I, predestined, it's God's good pleasure, it's his will, it's his purpose, he's appointed it for us not to be slaves, but to be sons, to be daughters. Their language was sons. Those would be the, inherited, the ones who would inherit. But we would probably just say sons and daughters. We are the ones that he chooses, that he loves. On purpose, since eternity, wherever you're from and whatever you look like, whatever your past. It's God's good pleasure. Third, in him... We have redemption. 
Verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, we've already talked about the fact that God blesses us, which means he sees good in us and calls it out, and that he's chosen us right from the beginning. He loves us. He believes that we're special, that we, we are worth something to him, and so he calls us to himself. And now it says that he's redeemed us. And this is important because if you just take the first two, you might say, oh, yeah, well, we're wonderful and great, and of course God would love us, and, and, and that's a beautiful thing. But if you're realistic <clears throat> about your own life, if you're realistic about the world, if you watch the news for 10 seconds, you go, hold on, we have a problem. And the problem is that we hurt each other. And the problem is that we make mistakes. And the problem is that we do things that, that offend God. The problem is that we are imperfect. And in fact, we don't all deserve all the things that we've already read about. But in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. We just talked about it. Oh, what if we turned away from God? What if we ran away from God? What if we tried to kill the Son of God that he would die for us? Which means we're now using sacrificial language for Jesus. It's his blood that is shed. And what does that mean? It means that we live in a world where we get what we deserve most of the time, especially if, if things are left to go long enough. You might not get what you deserve right away, but eventually over time, the way you act will come back to you. If you treat people a certain way long enough, they will treat you a certain way. And we sometimes think that way. Somebody hurts me and I want to hurt them. I want to get them back. I want to get, get justice. I want to get revenge. What does this mean? By the blood of Jesus, he says we're going to end the cycle. It's going to be through forgiveness. That's how we deal with our sin. That's how we deal with what's wrong with us. And there's a beautiful phrase in here where it says um, that it's lavished upon us, the riches of his grace. This is how God operates. Grace, right? Everything we've read so far. None of it's because we earn it. See, God, this is who he is. He lavishes. He just wants to, I'll give you forgiveness. I'll give you forgiveness. I'll forgive you. In all wisdom and insight. I love that. Wisdom is practical. Wisdom is how do you act out something that works in life. Insight is intellectual. How do we think through something that makes sense? The redemption of Jesus is both practical and insightful. It works because in a world where we always just go around the circle of revenge and revenge and revenge and revenge, we all live in condemnation. We all live in punishment. We all live in curse. Because we're all going to be in that cycle of, I've done something wrong, I've hurt somebody. And so this is practical. God comes in and says, here's what's going to happen. The one who doesn't deserve it is going to step in and say, we can live differently. Now you follow you follow me, you receive my forgiveness, and you follow in forgiving others, and let's break the cycle. And maybe we could actually move forward. So practical. I mean, it's difficult. Extremely challenging. But it's a way out. And it's insightful because, you know, if we think about this, we have to have a different answer than most of us have come up with because we can't just say, well, we're, we're, there's no real sin, there's no real problem. Like I said, we watch the news for five minutes. I mean, I was on vacation for three weeks. I've never taken three weeks of vacation my entire life in a row. And when I was on vacation, I tried to avoid news as much as I could, be off technology as much as I could. And then I came back on Monday and I read the news. It's tough. We can't just ignore it and say there's nothing wrong. 
But we can't just say, look how much is wrong and we can't fix it. And so here's the insight and the wisdom of the cross. The one who comes and says, I'm going to stop the cycle. The one who deserves nothing showing us grace. This is the pace of grace. It's everything we're talking about in this series. Fourth, we are heirs in him. 11, verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we... So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now the first, some of the first to hope in Christ are not us. Talking about the Ephesians here. Some of the early church in the first century. But but the rest, I think, you know, we we have obtained an inheritance. This has, again, been God's plan. It's his purpose. It's what he wants for us. And we go back to the previous verses, which make sense of why did he adopt us? Why did he bring us into the family? Why has he redeemed us to give us an inheritance? So now we become heirs and we have an inheritance. And what is it that we inherit? We go back to verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time, this is what God is doing. To unite all things in him, which is Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. So here's what God is doing in Christ, in the cross, in the redemption, in the forgiveness, in the working of good and blessing into a world that so often lives in curses. He's uniting all things. He's bringing everything. He's bringing the things of heaven, the things of God and the things of earth, that there's some good and then there's some not good, but he's bringing it all together again so that it's all good. He's restoring all. We read this in other places in the New Testament. He's restoring all things. That's our inheritance. It's like if you had a, a family business, your parents had a family business and they brought you one day to the business and they, they look, you know, like is Jeff Bezos taking his kids to Amazon headquarters and go, this might be a bad example because I, I don't know, and whatever. And he goes, here's what we're doing. Anybody on the planet can get whatever they want in 30 seconds and that's our business and it's yours. And we're still working on it, but, but this is going to be yours. You're, you're inheriting this. One day it's all going to be yours. Now God is not Amazon, but God is saying, I am bringing all things back together. I'm going to put everything back together. That's your inheritance. We're family now. You're my son. You're my daughter. You get to come be part of this now as we work towards, as God works towards in history, putting all things back together. So forth, we have an inheritance. We are heirs in him. And then fifth, we are We are his. Verse 13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. It means you trusted trusted in Jesus. We're sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That language, the guarantee uh, of inheritance and the promise of the Holy Spirit is language you might use, uh, they might have used for like an engagement ring. Because we might say, hey, it's not all put back together yet. I don't have my full inheritance. No, you don't. But I'm making a commitment to you. So put this, put this ring on. This ring will remind you that you're mine. You're mine. I'm committed to you. God is saying, I'm committed to you. Remember? You're blessed. You're chosen. You're redeemed. You're heirs. And you're mine. I'm with you. I'm with you all along the way. 
even when you forget it, even when you don't feel like it, even when all the other voices that are speaking into your life are louder than the voice I'm speaking into your life. I want you to be reminded that you're mine. And how are we reminded? What's that, what's that guarantee and promise look like? It looks like the Holy Spirit. It says we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now a seal for somebody in, in the, the New Testament times be again probably an owner like an owner of cattle for example and they would have a seal something that identified themselves so with cattle for example they would take their seal which would be some kind of picture or crest they would heat it up and they would brand the cattle and then when anybody came along and they saw the brand they know whose cattle that is i know who that belongs to i know what that 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 herd i know whose that is i know who they are that's not just a random that's not just some some cow that's so and so's cow i see their seal What's our seal? The Holy Spirit. The Spirit that, that leads us to love. And we can read, we'll read a lot more in this letter about how the Holy Spirit uh, prompts us to live. How do we know that we're God's? Because we have His Spirit living inside of us. Reminding us of His presence. Empowering us to do the things that He believes we can do and be the people that we can be. And that's why we start with our identity. Because before we get on to, here's the list of things that we should do. Or here's the kind of life that I think I should live. Or here's my plan for morality. we got to start here first. Whose are you? I'm His. And I am blessed and I am chosen and I am redeemed. I am an heir. My Heavenly Father. This is who we are. So uh, we're, we're talking here about uh, who we are as a church and who we're supposed to be as a community. And the more that we can start gathering in person and, and, and being here together and, and working out all this stuff that we read in the scriptures, who are we? What if we took these five things and we said, man, every day I just need to be reminded this is who I am. There's a lot of other voices that are going to tell me who I am. And if I listen to those voices, it's going to impact what I think I can do or can't do, what I think I should do or shouldn't do. It's going to impact my identity, especially when those, those are authority figures in our lives, people or things that mean a lot to us. But what if we started right here? And the reason why all of this applies to us is because of God's grace. It's the pace of grace. This is the pace that goes, God goes at. This is what he wants for us. This is what he wants us to live out of. This is what he wants to flow out of us. And that, that last uh, phrase, it says, you know, talking about that guarantee, our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, until everything's put back together, to the praise of his glory. Well, the more this gets worked out, the more we're just going to look and go, man, that's just, God is so good. He's put it all back together. Not just for me or us, but for the world. That's what God is doing. So Dallas Willard and uh, John Ortberg, John Ortberg is a pastor, Dallas Willard was a professor, uh, both worked on a lot of um, spiritual transformation and development stuff, and they wrote a book together about blessing. It's really what we started with and where we come back to. It's this blessing. It's the English teacher looking and seeing something good and calling it forth. It's what God does for us. He sees what's good and calls us forth because he blesses us and he chooses us. And when we're off track, he redeems us because he wants to make us our heirs because we're his. So what if we became people of blessing. Like what if, what if we just woke up every single day and we said, this is who I am. Way down in my core. And this is who we are as a community. And so Ortberg and, and Dallas Willard say this, become a person of blessing. Imagine now becoming a person of blessing. Imagine you and others being characterized by the blessing flowing out from you. 
our communities would be spotted with points of light from whom blessing flows. Imagine becoming a person of blessing. That's how you're identified. Who am I? I am a person of blessing. Blessing comes from me because God is living in me. Just keep that blessing flowing. Just keep that blessing flowing. So now I close, and I want to read just uh, a very old, common, powerful blessing from the Scriptures for you. And I hope after the last few minutes, maybe it'll mean just a, a little bit more to you than it did before. But receive this as, as God's Word, as God seeing good in you and calling it forth. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.